the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Grant, we beseech thee, O Almighty God, that we who are incessantly afflicted by our transgressions may be delivered through the passion of thy Son, who lives and reigns with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our prayer for this evening was taken from the Collect for Holy Mass uh, tomorrow, Wednesday of Holy Week. Appropriate to what it is that we're talking about, it is precisely because of the mystery of the sacrifice of the Mass and its connection to the sacrament itself that allows us to have continual contact with the mystery of that which we are celebrating. This is what is unique about us as Catholic men and women. The events that we are commemorating through great solemnity, great dignity, uh, a somberness, beautiful music, beautiful vestments. You can see that we've already begun the process of preparing our altar of repose for Holy Thursday evening. All of the energy that has been expended thus far, and even more to be expended in the next several days leading us the celebration of the Lord's glorious resurrection is not to celebrate something that is ossified in the past, but to celebrate and rejoice in a reality that is real and true and present here and now. I cannot stress that enough for us. We're not dabbling in something that is merely metaphorical or an allegory, certainly not a myth. Real, true, substantial presence and all that caught up in the mystery of the sacrifice itself. I want to do a few uh, housekeeping details at the very beginning, and then we have a number of things to do that may seem a little bit disjointed, but are all together to draw these days of reflection to a close. Uh, first of all, a, a word of gratitude to Lou Cortese and uh, St. Joseph's Radio for their work in being here both the last time we were together, those first three, and now these as well, which not only has made it available uh, to our community, but uh, as I have discovered, a great many people both around the country and some around the world have seen what it is that goes on here. So I'm grateful for their willingness and their generosity in doing this. Secondly, in keeping with our desire for ongoing education on April the 10th, which is the Saturday in the octave of Easter, we will have the wonderful opportunity of having Dr. Peter Kwasniewski present here with us. He is the author of the book that has been given to our community, Reclaiming Our Catholic Birthright on the Nature of the Holy Sacrifice of Mass. He will be here. So if you have received a copy of that book, which most of you should have, and hopefully have had a chance to, if not read it all the way through, certainly to peruse it, we have a great opportunity to be uh, with the man who wrote this book. I, I will say this. I discovered... Dr. K's work probably about maybe four or five years ago on the blog uh, 1 Peter 5, if you're not familiar with that blog. I don't normally recommend blogs to you because oftentimes they're motivated by various emotional realities. But 1 Peter 5 is very well worth the reading because all of the writers there, including Dr. K, present issues in the life of the church, liturgical and otherwise, in a manner that is not histrionic, in a manner that is not emotional or emotive, 
which truly thought out and accessible theologically for all of us. And so I kind of became a, a fanboy of his, if you will, and pretty much have read as much of his things as I can get my hands on. He was supposed to be with us last year, but of course last year we were under interdict forced on us by the government, and so we were not able to be together this year, barring God only knows what could happen. And remember now, it's all up for grabs now, so who knows what craziness they might try to place on us between now and next Saturday, not this coming Saturday, but the following Saturday. But all things being equal, he will be here with us. It'll be a beautiful day. We'll begin with continental breakfast. We'll have a presentation. We'll have an opportunity to celebrate solemn high mass in the octave of Easter, which will be beautiful. We'll have lunch, a second presentation. In the, in the uh, end of the uh, day, in the afternoon, in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord with exposition and benediction. Uh, again, there are flyers that have been in the bulletins. There are flyers, I believe, in the back of church. And they're also at all the doors. You all know Donna Miller, right? I think I've said this repeatedly. Donna, stand up. Just, just stay. Everybody needs to see you. Because I can't... You can sit back down now. Anyway, yes, we probably should applaud Donna. Because the truth is, I cannot. I, not, I could not. I, and I, may, I say this all the time. I know she gets tired of hearing it. She doesn't like me to say it. But the truth is, all the work that we've been able to do in the last several years, in no small measure, has been because of the assistance Donna gives me. And oftentimes, not only the assistance, she's kind of in charge. So... I'm in charge of the spiritual realities of the oratory. Donna assists me in the temporal realities. And so uh, she's made up a beautiful flyer for us. Take that home. Please call and sign up. Um, there is no cost for this, but so we know numbers. We can plan whether we're going to be here. If there are only a few of us, we can be down in the St. Joseph's room. We'll figure all of those pieces out. All right. So everybody's good? I think those are my only housekeeping details. Of course, you know this is Holy Week. And you have the schedule for the oratory of the celebration of the sacred mysteries beginning Holy Thursday at 4 p.m., Good Friday, and the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified at 3 p.m., the Easter Vigil on Holy Saturday at 4 p.m. Um, that's all that needs to be said. Well, actually not. One final exhortation, and then I'll get to the meat of, of our topic for today. My confessor told me today to be deliberate and intentional not only in my prayer in general, but in these days leading to the celebration of our Lord's resurrection. It's good advice. It's practical, but good, deliberate, and intentional. Make sacrifices to be here. Clear your schedule. Take some of those accrued days that you have from work and use them for this. And if you are privileged to be retired or you can make your own schedule or you happen to be your own boss, then carve out time. Don't show up five minutes before and leave five minutes after. Remember, by tradition, into Thursday, Friday, all of Saturday is a great fast, a time of prayer. Holy Saturday is not a day to get all your work done, uh, any more so than Sunday is a day you get all your work done. It's a day to sit in quiet and in silence. It's a somberness because of what it is that we are celebrating, what we are commemorating, what it is that we're calling to mind. Wednesday evening, Thursday evening, and Friday evening at 9 p.m., we will also have the opportunity for the celebration of Tenebrae, that beautiful combination of matins and lauds uh, preceding Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. This is our third year that we have been privileged to host it. I'm uh, blessed that we're able to get, it's again, a wonderful way to come and pray. Yes, it's late at night, but if you're not doing anything else, then you don't have to worry about it. 
come and you pray, go home and go to sleep. Get up, come back and pray, go home and go to sleep. Get up and do it again. You have to worry about anything else. So there are a number of things happening, but these aren't activities just to click off your list. They're all there to help you be deliberate and intentional in calling to mind this full revelation of the Paschal mystery that happens to us in the celebration of Holy Week. All right. So, all that kind of housekeeping details. So, let's, uh, let's, uh, so if you look at the outline that I gave for this evening, we're going to do a couple of different things. I want to uh, sum up for us this conversation about sacrifice uh, by doing a, just like a little bit of a historical discursus through Ambrose and Augustine. Ambrose, the teacher of Augustine, Augustine, the great doctor of grace, of course, St. Thomas, the doctor of theology itself, some insights from the Council of Trent, and then to move even more through tradition itself in letter C under Roman numeral number three, look at the relationship between sacrament and sacrifice, and again the cross and the sacrifice of the Holy of Mass itself. Then we'll turn to the relationship between the sacrifice and the Most Holy Trinity, and then we'll conclude with two maybe more, if you will, practical ways or practical realities for us, looking at the graces of Holy Mass, what it is that happens to us or what we receive, by, who it, by whom it is we receive, and then how we devoutly assist at Holy Mass. And this was a little beautiful treasure that I came across in my research, insights from a book by St. Uh, uh, Leonard of Port uh, Maurice. Uh, I believe he's mid-17th century. Um, just a wonderful little discursus on uh, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and these insights on how to assist at Holy Mass come from him as well. So, let's take a look at the insights of St. Ambrose. Because the reality of the sacrifice of the Mass and the Church's consistent teaching of the Mass as a sacrifice comes from her acceptance of our Lord's real presence. And the church only theologizes about our Lord's real presence, in a sense, after the fact. In large measure, because when the Lord himself at the Last Supper says to his apostles, do this in memory of me, as Jews they would have understood precisely what that meant. To do in memory, to remember, to memorialize, to make a remembrance of. All those variants of that word, that reality, for ancient Israel meant to make present something of the past event, which is why the Passover is the definitive event of the ancient Israel. And, and by extension, it is argued, it is taught that the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the Lord's Passover, which we experience in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, gives definitive meaning to the Jewish Passover complete, once and for all. What does that mean concretely? That then the Lord says to the ancient Israelites on the first Passover, and he explains to them how they're supposed to prepare themselves, how they're supposed to gather together, how they're supposed to prepare the meal, how they're supposed to be dressed, all of these things. And he says, this is a perpetual memorial. And you're to do this forever, he says, basically. It's perpetual. And so in doing the things connected to that first original reality, bread, grapes, bitter fruits, calling to mind what had happened before, all of that made present the saving power of God here and now. It wasn't just that God delivered us from slavery, an event that is in the past. Yes, 
It happened historically. But in the act of the Passover, 50, 100 years, 200 years hence, God was still delivering us. God is still active in us. God is still present with us. And so when God himself, the God-man, says to his disciples, do this in memory of me, whenever two or three of you gather in my name, this is real food, this is real drink, this is my body, this is my blood for the new covenant, the new testament, eat my flesh. All of these things, they are real to them. This is why in John's gospel so many leave him, because the language that the Lord uses when he responds to them that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood is not uh, the rabbinical kind of metaphorical consum consuming of the word. He literally meant you must chew my flesh. You must drink my blood. And rightly so, upon the first hearing of this, we can see that they would have been shocked, scandalized, overwhelmed about this. Now notice, the Lord doesn't change the teaching. And of course, we know now how he had prepared to fulfill that exhortation. If we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, how is that going to come about? We know now by what he does at the Last Supper in the Synoptic Gospels. So the real presence of our Lord, which was already accepted as foundation, then gives rise to these reflections about the nature of sacrament and sacrifice. But the reality of sacrifice, which is our focus, that if indeed he is here, and if indeed in doing this, we are making present from this first event. What is it that is happening here? Well, all the merits, Thomas says, 2000, or 1,200 years plus, give or take, after the initial event of our Lord's passion, death on the cross, it makes present the merits of the cross here and now. It applies them to us here and now. Now again, we take these realities for granted. This is what we believe, hopefully. But it's something that we need to come back to constantly again, in much the same manner that we're doing in Holy Week. Nothing will change historically. The outcome is always going to be the same. What the church says is pause for a moment and contemplate what it is that God is doing for you. Pause and contemplate what God is doing for you because of what it is that he has done, what it is that he will do, because of what it is that he's doing here and now. The beauty of this past, present, and future reality of God's work is that all of it beautifully coalesces, comes together in the holy sacrifice. The holy sacrifice calls to mind that original sacrifice. It makes it present here and now, and it prepares us for that future glory that will be made manifest in the eschaton. So when St. Ambrose comes to us and he speaks about the Lord's real presence, and this change of bread and wine into body and blood. He's the first one to make clear that language that will become prominent first in about the 10th century, and then we will see it in Thomas, and we'll certainly see it in the Council of Trent, when it talks about transubstantiation, a change of substance without a change of accidents. But this establishment of this transformation of bread and wine into the Lord's real body, real body and his real blood, whereby he then remains present there, is precisely so that that which he accomplishes on the cross does remain present to us as well. There is an internal logic to what God himself has crafted and what the theologians then divine what God himself gave to us. Remember again, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, 
I will be with you always until the end of the age, the end of time. How is that going to be accomplished? If we also know that he's going to ascend to glory. He's already said in John's gospel, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am you also may be. So we know at some point, again, we know this now with the clarity of the unfolding of the Paschal Mystery, but even as the Lord makes reference to all of these things which for the apostles would have been confusing because they had to first experience them and then had to wait for an outpouring of the Spirit to help all of this make sense to them, still the Lord explained to them what was going to happen. And so the ascension is real. So how is the Lord going to fulfill that if he's going to be with us always until the end of the age? And the answer is his real presence. He is with us here and now. I'm, I'm a little upset at myself that he's behind me here, but also grateful that he is to make sure that I say what needs to be said. And so St. Ambrose reminds us that the fullness of the Paschal mystery is encountered in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And that is rooted in our Lord's real, true, and substantial presence. We find in the teaching of the church from St. Ambrose is that the Eucharist then not only is a full encounter with the Paschal Mystery, so yes, the Paschal Mystery is real, but it maybe stands kind of objective like Zacchaeus watching the Lord go by until the Lord stops and says, come down, Zacchaeus, I mean to stay in your house. The Eucharist, St. Ambrose also reminds us, allows us an entrance into the Lord's death and his glorious resurrection. So not only is it real that we continue to witness it, but not, again, not as silent or uh, merely as spectators, but our presence at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. We're going to chat a little bit toward the end about that phrase, hearing Mass, which uh, for some reason upset lots of people. They, you, you hear Mass. Well, there's, there's actually a beautiful dynamic to that hearing Mass, and that's even the language that St. Leonard uses as well, devoutly assisting, devoutly hearing Mass. It implies that you're only listening, but actually you're listening with the interiority of your heart. And so while people might perceive it as uh, passivity, you sit there and all of the action takes place up here. That's the critique I get all the time when people come first, especially those who aren't familiar with the, uh, the traditional Mass. Well, you're doing everything. Well, yes, I am, because that's what I was ordained to do. So yes, I am. But actually, you also have things to do as well. So it's not as if I'm doing everything and you just happen to be there, or, or not be there, as the case may be. There are things that you need to be doing as well. And while you're not necessarily doing the things that I'm doing, we're all engaged in the same reality, and that is this entrance into, this penetrating, this being able to share in the fullness of the Lord's Paschal mystery so that we can be there. We have read the Passion now in the traditional rite twice. We did it on Palm Sunday. We did it today. We'll do it tomorrow, and we'll do it on Good Friday. All four versions of the Lord's Passion narrative we listen to. And I was reading something today in reflection on that that says that we should be moved to tears when we hear the Lord's passion. We should be moved to tears. And one of the reasons why we are moved to tears is not just merely some nostalgia, but the emotions that arise from actually being there. St. Ignatius of Loyola spoke often in his method of praying, of placing oneself in sacred scripture, which is praiseworthy and laudatory. But the fact of the matter is, we place ourselves in sacred scripture because sacred scripture is alive to us in our Lord's real presence and the sacrifice into which we enter. 
We're not play acting here, folks. It isn't, again, something on a screen that we simply witness and turn on and off. It literally must envelop us, consume us. Our friend Augustine, the doctor of grace, and again, I'm truncating some of the, again, everything that I presented, there is more there. Actually, I uh, was looking through my library, just the pulling out books to use for these presentations. And one of the wonderful things about kind of having crafted my own library is I've come across, because I just collect books. I buy books, I collect them, and they sit there, and then I might get to them or not. I've, now, at this point, I've read about half. There was a time when I read about three-fourths of them, but I've bought more since. Um, it's discovering how much is out there to still be read over and over and over again. You're never going to exhaust this. So I say all that to say, what I presented here has only been a, a thumbnail. There's so much more out there. Uh, and the thing about actually the internets is that there, actually you can Google this information. You can find it very easily. If you're ever confused about something, email me and I can help you kind of navigate through that. But um, this is a kind of an exhortation to continue to read. So, Augustine, of course, relies upon his teacher, St. Ambrose. And he talks about the Holy Sacrifice in the context of the Holy Eucharist as a sacrament. And it is in Augustine that we get that very simple definition of a sacrament, a visible sign of an invisible reality. The visible sign, of course, is our Lord's, is the bread. The invisible reality is our Lord's precious body. There was no separation between the two for uh, Augustine, which some uh, theologians, especially in the kind of um, early Middle Ages, begin to try to parse out. Well, what's the relationship between the sign and the reality? For Augustine, the sign and reality were interconnected, and it was clear. He didn't need to explain the relationship. That will come later. Uh, again, culminating in the insights from St. Thomas, but we're not quite there yet. But again, what he describes in the Holy Eucharist is that it is this reality of identification and relationship between the sign and the grace signified, meaning the bread, which is our Lord's body, communicates to us the grace that is signified by being able to visibly or invisibly interact with our Lord's body. We see bread, but we're not dealing with bread. We're dealing with God himself. That's why all of our acts of reverence, from the moment we come into the church to the moment we leave, are comporting ourselves in such a way that he who is in the tabernacle is real and true. We genuflect. We're quiet and silent. This is not a place of playing around. It's not a place for conversation. It's not a place to catch up with your neighbor. It's a place to encounter God. He resides he lives here. This is his abode. Why? Because that which I see, which looks like bread, is no longer bread. It is his body. And by the theory of concomitance, it is his body, blood, soul, and divinity. The whole Christ is present under the appearance of bread and under the appearance of wine. It is true body and true blood. Augustine was very good at looking at the Old Testament and looking at the archetypes of the Eucharist that were there, most especially, again, the manna that comes down from heaven. That bread that we had to eat over and over and over again as the ancient Israelites journeyed into desert, now we receive the bread that comes down from heaven that satisfies once and for all, not only in body, but in spirit as well. But then Augustine was also very clear on the effects of the Eucharist and the sacrifice attending to it. 
and the fact that the Eucharist is what binds and holds us all together. He would be beyond understanding of the schism that has happened between the East and the West. He would be apoplectic at the heresies of our separated brethren. It wouldn't compute to Augustine. There is no sense of a Eucharistic reality apart from ecclesial unity. Why is this significant? Because oftentimes, again, as Catholics, we're accused of being exclusive because we won't allow anybody to simply come forward and receive. Well, the reason being is because the act of reception is a manifestation of an ecclesial relationship and the fullness of the ecclesial relationship. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but this is why all the things going on in the church right now simply don't make sense. All these people, well, I'll use it by way of example, not to create any type of emotional issue for people. But all of these politicians who talk about their private beliefs while uh, purporting to, to defend positions that are antithetical to the truths of the faith. I'm still a Catholic. You're not. You're not. You may say you are. You can claim you are. I can claim I'm a butterfly and flap my arms. That doesn't make me one. Why? Because when you receive our Lord, so there is our president who prominently went to communion given to him by the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. on the day of his inauguration so that everyone was clear that he was Catholic. So he's receiving our Lord, who we know is real and true. What that means is he's receiving the fullness of the Lord. Everything about the Lord. which is everything about what the church teaches. You don't get to pick and choose those pieces of the Lord that are good for you and leave the rest behind. So if one does not live that reality then one should not receive that reality. To present oneself at the altar rail and the very act of kneeling down even before one receives is a manifestation of one's desire for unity, for true and authentic inclusion. So ecclesial communion is affected by the Eucharist. The Lord is the one that binds us together. He's the one that brings us to Holy Mass. Yes, the church demands that we go, but she demands that we go, one, for our benefit, in the same way that our mothers demanded we wash our ears and brush our teeth, but then she also knows that this is the fulfillment of the injunction to keep holy the Sabbath, but most importantly because God is worthy of our adoration and he's gone through such great pains to give us this perfect means of adoring him. And so the Lord is the one who affects our unity, but then by entering into relationship with him, we are committing ourselves to the full reality of that unity, of that communio, that word that the Second Vatican Council used often to express these relationships. This is why, again, it is unthinkable and untenable, the positions that the church has found herself in by various politicians, or the craziness in the church in Germany right now. Whole cloths of the bishops dissenting from the church's traditional teachings about the right relationships between men and women. They're scandalized that the church would defend her teachings. This, of course, is, again, for Augustine, the early church, but even for the church now, this is the problem when bishops are errant, when bishops are sinful, because then they have the ability to take whole swaths of the church with them. It could rightly be argued that Germany left us 500 years ago, 600 years ago, and this is only now the fruit of rubbing up against heresy for 600 years, but that's for some people greater than me to kind of posit and discuss. For Augustine, it was very clear that this sacrifice, which was connected to our Lord's real presence, is what bound and held us all together. He also is the one who articulates that this is a true sacrifice that then is present in every work done with the purpose of joining ourselves 
to holy communion, every work ordained towards that good end by which we can truly be happy. Because the Eucharist is an ecclesial act, and because it is a true sacrifice, it gives meaning to all of the things that we do. So the church describes the Eucharist as the source and the summit. It also, uh, St. John Paul himself reflected on several different occasions about the ethical and the evangelical implications of the Eucharistic sacrifice. The ethical meaning you have to behave in a certain way. Again, there it is again. You can't say, I believe in the Eucharist, receive the Eucharist, and then behave in a way that is in concert with that faith and that activity of receiving. And then it also is a call to evangelization. We have to convert the whole world. Why? Because we have something that they need. Excuse me. Excuse me. They're not being fed. They're eating something, but it's not good food. Good food comes from our Lord. A lot happens, and unfortunately, history, historically and time-wise, I, I, I can't. I want to. I'm really tempted to, but I'm not going to. A lot happens between Augustine, Ambrose, and my, our friend St. Thomas. One important thing that happens in between is that it's the first time around 1000 or so that there is some confusion about our Lord's real presence. And a gentleman who was the archdeacon of the city of Tours named Berengarius, who didn't mean to be a heretic, but he became one nonetheless, which is why the church is always very particular about her language, because it's easy, if you're not careful, to fall into heresy. And Berengarius did. He was trying to fix what he thought was a problem in that Augustinian articulation of visible sign and invisible reality. He was trying to figure out how are they related to each other? How do they hold together? And again, for Augustine, this wasn't a question to be asked. The sign and that which it signified were one together. How that happened, he never needed to actually conceptualize. Berengarius attempts to do that, and in so doing, he ends up asserting uh, not a togetherness, but actually a separateness. But that also then beautifully provides the church an opportunity to reflect on, all right, what is then the relationship? St. Thomas is the one who will eventually draw all of that together by telling us sacrament in general. It's a visible sign and a cause of invisible grace. There's the sign, there's the grace that is given, and the interconnectedness between the two is this act of causality, the sign itself affecting, making manifest the grace. Now, this is another conversation for us. I would love to have it. By the way, this is my wheelhouse right now. My degree is in sacramental theology. I could talk about this literally all day. You would be bored to death, but I love talking about this stuff. Um, I don't want to bore you to death. So that's that what, that what happens with this accidental heresy of Berengarius is a chance for the church to try to uh, shore up a greater understanding of that. By the time we get to Thomas, there has been uh, wonderful reflections on sacraments in general. But then, of course, what Thomas does in the Summa, really, actually, the Summa Contra Gentiles, and then also the Summa Theologica, he provides a wonderful synthesis of patristic thought and patristic heritage, both Greek and Latin. The Summa can be, at times, very difficult to go through. So it's not light reading, so don't pick up the Summa on a rainy afternoon and decide, oh, I'll just peruse the Summa. You can, 
I guarantee you it will not have the result that you will want. You'll be edified by it. I don't doubt that at all, but it's, it can be difficult to go through if you're not used to the manner in which Thomas presents things to us. But what is the significance of Thomas in relationship to our conversation, the Eucharist and the sacrifice itself? First is, he says, since no salvation could ever be obtained without faith in the passion of Christ, a certain ritual representation of this passion had to be available to all human beings. He situates the Eucharist as the center of salvation history so that, since, as he says, quoting uh, or paraphrasing from Paul's exhortation to the Romans, since no salvation could ever be obtained without faith in the passion of Christ, not just in the full Paschal mystery, but specifically in the passion of Christ. He says, Thomas, there had to be, the Lord gives to us, and it makes sense because there needed to be some way for us then to have access to this passion that is central for us to understand our salvation. I'm saved by Christ crucified. Yes, period, basta, end of conversation. But that's actually not because if that is true, and it is, the question then is, how do I still have contact with that salvation that is the center of my existence? And the answer Thomas offers, which the church herself had offered, is the Most Holy Eucharist. The Eucharist anticipated, he says, through all of the Old Testament rituals, but now fulfilled in the New Testament. And of course we know that already because of what we talked about in our first uh, time together, our first session together, is the reality of Christ's presence there, what Christ is doing there, and the reality of Christ himself. After having established that the Eucharistic sacrifice is the center of salvation history, Thomas spends some time uh, kind of unfolding for us where the presence of the Lord is, when the Lord comes at Holy Mass, where he is, and how we, dis how we can talk about that. He says the immediate effect of the consecration of the body and blood is that Christ himself is contained completely and totally in the sacrament. Of course, the church has decided that it is both the epiclesis, but specifically for us in the West, it is the words of institution. We call down the Holy Spirit. But then the priest says, this is my body and this is my blood. He says these words of Christ himself over the sacred elements and they are immediately transubstantiated into his body and into his blood. He says, however, Thomas, that the ultimate effect of the Eucharist caused by the sacrament but not contained in the sacrament is that unity of the mystical body of Christ, the church. This is significant because one of the things we're going to talk about in a minute when we look at the Eucharist and its relationship or the sacrifice and its relationship to the Most Holy Trinity is that remember, our final end is beatitude, is joy, is peace in the presence of God. We exist not just merely to have our sins forgiven. Yes, God does that for us. Nor are we simply repairing damage done by Adam and Eve. The end result of this is that union that we share with the mystical body of Christ. The church triumphant in glory. The church in purgation as she awaits uh, the sanctifying graces to move them from purgatory into heaven. And then us, the church militant. Those of us who continue to move forward and to marshal on. All of us are united into that mystical body of Christ who is our head, our guide, and our shepherd. 
The consecration for Thomas is the key dynamic. And we can see preparation for that work, if you will, of the Trinitarian understanding of the consecration only truly being the sacrament. Thomas suggests that the Eucharistic prayer is a beautiful act of piety. But in good scholastic thought, he says the only significant import in the Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon, is the act of consecration itself. Now, this seems strange for him to say. But he wants to make very clear that all of those things that surround the, the words of institution, the consecration itself, the bread and wine transubstantiated into our Lord's body and blood, he says, are of piety. Prayers leading up to and prayers coming from. The heart is the words that change. They make bread and wine into body and blood. He then makes very clear that what happens at this consecration and remember now, he's building on all of the scholastic tradition, especially those of Ambrose and Augustine, where for Augustine, again, the sacrifice was the, was the, uh, um, the center of salvation history, that bound, that reality that binds us together. So Thomas is going, in a sense, a step further and saying, in the words of consecration, what happens? The whole substance of bread and the whole substance of wine, that which makes it bread and wine, are changed into body and blood. Now, when you receive our Eucharistic Lord, if you receive him under the appearance of body, a sacred species of body, or if you uh, have in the experience or have had the experience of receiving our Lord's precious blood, it retains those properties, those accidental properties that are specific to bread and wine. It tastes like bread, it tastes like wine, but it is no longer that. It is now the whole substance, the whole reality of what is appearing to us as one thing but we know now because of faith what God intends is a totally another reality. Now the question that often comes is, well, why all of these machinations to do that? Because in one sense, we could not conceptualize any other way of receiving our Lord's body. For example, when that Berengarius person was raising accidentally his heretical views, there was lots of conversation about literally chewing on which body part are you chewing on when you're receiving Holy Communion. Seems like a gross formulation of the reality. But not, again, an unfair question if we're receiving our Lord's body. But what the reception of bread and wine do, or what the reception does, rather, excuse me, let me speak English, what the reception does is it takes away those types of conversations. We don't ask about which body part we're consuming, which arm or leg or finger of the Lord we're actually eating, rather. The whole substance of the bread and wine, that's why bread and wine remain visible, tangible to us. But there's something else for us. Remember, God derives nothing from this. This is all being done for us. He also reminds us that the human soul and the divinity of our Lord are present there as well. Again, this is because body and blood are connected as they are with the Lord, so they would be in the sacrifice as well. He then does provide some attention to the nature of the Eucharist as sacrifice. He says, The risen Lord is present, as is his passion, represented, he says, by the twofold signs of bread and wine, the body offered and the blood outpoured. The Lord's passion is present, represented by the, the risen Lord, is represented in his passion by bread and wine offered and poured. And then we're not going to go into that, but he offers a nine-point allegorization 
between the Passion and the Eucharistic Prayer. I presented that to you. I think that's uh, what I presented to you last week, and I read from Father Kochem's book itself. But it is significant that indeed the whole of the Lord's Passion, but notice it's the risen Lord. Why is that significant? Again, because we're not crucifying our Lord again and again and again. Rather, it is the risen Lord himself that offers his perpetual sacrifice. It is a continuation. Trent uses a re-presentation, hyphenating that word, so that we're clear that we're making present again, but we're doing so because it, it continues that which God has always made available to us. And then he also says, in talking about the sacrifice and the twofold signs of bread and wine as body and blood outpoured, that it also is a sacrificial representation of the cross. He describes it as a sacrament of the cross. In the New Law, Thomas says, the true sacrifice of Christ is communicated to the faithful under the species of bread and wine so that the church's sacrifice participates in the one sacrifice of Christ. So we speak about being present at the foot of the cross when we are present at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Again, that's not hyperbole. Uh, it's not a, a pious exhortation. That is exactly what's happened. That language that comes from Trent is the unbloodied representation of the bloody sacrifice on Calvary. The same sacrifice, the same priest, the same offering, only the manner being different. And why? Again, the manner is different for us. It would be too hard for us to truly comprehend. We think we would have the courage to be uh, in uh, Jerusalem when our Lord was crucified. But if you've joined us for the Stations of the Cross here, or hopefully you've prayed them at some point throughout this Lenten season, you know how very difficult it is to walk the Stations of the Cross, to meditate on our Lord's suffering in kind of the antiseptic environment of our beautiful church. Imagine what it must have been for the disciples. Imagine especially having been now to Jerusalem and being able to both do the Via Dolorosa but also visit those sites where all of these events unfolded. The, 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 the image of Peter hiding out in the courtyard while the Lord is inside. We think about, you know, expansive spaces. This was all crowded together. There was no social distancing. Everybody was on top of everybody else, clamoring for our Lord's blood, telling lies against our Lord, seeking his death. And all the while, the Lord stands there silent, barely answering questions because he knows that this cup that he must now drink is the will of the Father, and he does that with joy and perfect obedience. And so we are given this opportunity to experience in an unbloody manner that first bloody sacrifice on Calvary. Again, in large measure, because that's all that in truth we could actually handle. Trent, again, Trent, rather, makes perfectly clear, again, borrowing from Thomas, but also summarizing Thomas, so now we've gone from basically Ambrose and Augustine in the 3rd and 4th centuries to Thomas in the 13th century to now the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Uh, in the Mass, a true and proper sacrifice is offered to God. It is a sacrifice of praise. It is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
It also is a sacrifice of propitiation, meaning it is a sacrifice that expiates, that removes sin. And it is a sacrifice that can be applied in its propitiatory nature to both the living and the dead. That's why we pray for our beloved dead. Do you include all of your beloved dead in your prayers every evening? You should. You should pray for them every, you should pray multiple times for them. You might think that your great Aunt Hilda is in heaven because she was a great woman. And maybe she is in heaven. But since you don't have the power to declare that, you should pray for her on the off chance that you might be wrong. Or on the off chance that there were still sins that she needed to have purified, which is more likely the case. Because this true sacrifice, which is offered to God through the Son by an outpouring of the Spirit, is one first of praise to God. It is thanksgiving to God. For what? For everything that He has done by giving us life, by creating us, by redeeming us, and sanctifying us. But the application of it, and especially its effects to expiate sin, is applied to the living and the dead. This is most beautifully expressed in the Roman canon in a way that isn't always clear in the other Eucharistic prayers in the celebration of the Novus Ordo. Because we have a clear communicantis of the living, praying for those who are alive, whatever uh, intentions we bring to the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And then we have clearly an opportunity to pray also for those who have died. And that this sacrifice does make satisfaction for the punishments that we rightly deserve. There is no more that needs to be done. Well, then why go to confession? Why do penance? Because part of penance is to be connected in a salutary way to the effects of the cross, but also we do penance as an outward manifestation of the depth of our contrition. So what are the three acts of the penitent in penance and confession? Contrition, confession, and satisfaction. I am contrite by the Holy Spirit. My heart moves me to contrition. My contrition compels me to confess my sins. It's not enough to be sorry in my heart. I have to tell you I'm sorry. So if I hurt your feelings and I feel bad about it, but I never tell you I'm sorry for hurting your feelings, I actually don't feel that bad about it. I might feel bad about it. I might think I feel bad about it. Oh, I feel really bad about it. Well, that's great for you. What about going to the person you actually offended and saying, hey, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. So contrition moved by the Spirit, that requires confession. And then because I know that I've hurt you, I want to do something to make up for that. Husbands bringing flowers to their wives when they forget their anniversaries, things of that nature. Of course, the flowers don't make up for that lack of remembrance of the most important event of that man's life, but it certainly is a good step in the right direction. Obviously, penance is more than that. But it is that. It's an outward manifestation of a desire to repair, to make reparation, to make recompense, to make whole, if you will. If I steal from you, I need to give back to you. If I take something that belongs to you, I should give it back to you. And if not that, I should give something in kind. Now, there is no penance that could make satisfaction for our sins except for that which the Lord himself has done. That's why this sacrifice was always going to be necessary. It didn't matter how many scapegoats were slaughtered. It wasn't going to make a difference because the only blood that was ever going to ever make recompense for the sins for which we were guilty was the blood of God himself. And so this sacrifice into which we enter 
is effective for those who are alive and effective for those who are dead. That tradition of, of, of having relics in altars or having bodies in altars. If you go to Rome, sadly now silent and empty because of the insanity of that city as it continues to get crazier and crazier by the day. But there was, up until March the 22nd, that beautiful tradition of close to 44 side altars, both in the body of the church itself and in the crypt of priests celebrating Mass. I did it often. Actually, when I lived in Rome, I think I should, when I lived in Rome, every Saturday morning was my ritual to get up in the morning by myself, traipse to St. Peter's in the early morning. Sometimes it was cold and dark. It was beautiful. To have my side or say my prayers, spend an hour or two in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel and then make my way home and, and then really do nothing for the rest of the day because that's how Rome is. You don't really do, you don't work that hard all the time. Uh, and then to see other priests celebrating Mass. And to have to be cognizant when you moved around the Basilica, and it was a beautiful time to be there because visitors weren't allowed. All of these Masses going on, all this grace being unleashed. It's a powerful thing to see. To have all of that being applied. And so the church understands, and so in each of those side altars, various, uh, various saints or various relics of saints buried there. Of course, uh, the one altar that was very much in demand of recent years was the altar both of St. John the Twenty-Third, but the altar of St. John Paul II himself. I was never able to celebrate Mass there. I got one better. I celebrated Mass at the Confessio, at the altar near the bones of St. Peter himself. But there you are. Why would we do that again? This is strange. Why, why bones? It seems creepy uh, and morbid. Why do you guys do that? Well, because of first, the incarnation. Because bones mean something. The body means something. The body has value and dignity, first of all. But then the body buried there. And one says, I, I would love to be buried underneath this. So when the priest is standing there celebrating Mass, my proximity to what's happening there in some way may rub off on me. I will be in purgatory. I guarantee you that. Actually, I'm shooting. I'm trying to get to heaven, but in reality, I'm really kind of shooting for purgatory because I know what a sinner I actually am. So I, wa I will need prayers. Let me be very clear. So don't say, oh, Monsignor Moore is such a great guy. He was so, no, no, don't do that to me. Pray for me. Gregorian masses, 30, 40, 50, 100 years of them if need be. And so if I'm near the altar of sacrifice, then I get to somehow, even in death, participate in this reality that brings life. And if you see, in all of this theologizing, which is what we've done, we've done a lot of theology, but what's underneath that was very early on simply a life of faith in the words of Christ himself and in the truth therein. This is what God has said, these are the promises that have made, and this is the manner of how we will live. But notice the beauty of our faith, that everything we do reinforces or should reinforce what it is that we believe. There isn't anything spare or accidental or extraneous. It all is of a piece. And so this desire to be buried near altars clearly indicates that those who understood that, especially in the early life of the church, knew why was there a church built over the site of St. Peter? We now know that where Peter's bones were discovered, where they were put back, was the precise spot where he was buried secretly when he was martyred somewhere between 64 and 66 A.D. So when the Lord said to Peter, you are rock, and upon rock I will build my church, that's literally what happened. Real quick story. It's always good to throw a couple stories in. My first time at the Scavi tour. The Scavi tour is the excavations under St. Peter. So when Pius XII, was it Pius XI? 
bearing Pius X, was Pius XII, I think it was Pius XII bearing Pius XI. They were putting him in the floor of St. Peter's. They knocked through the floor. And also, they went down and they found a necropolis, the city of the dead, a cemetery. And they had no idea what they would discover. And it's absolutely fabulous. If you have a chance to go to Rome, assuming Rome will still exist and they will actually let you in, all things being equal, go to the Scavi. When I went to the Scavi, you could actually walk around the whole thing. Now they got doors that close and it's hermetically sealed and all that good stuff. But we get to the point, I was being on a tour about two and a half hours. You're underground, so it's kind of, again, it's kind of claustrophobic. If you don't like tight spaces, this is not for you. I'll tell you that right now. You won't make it down the stairs, let alone getting into the, and it's, I mean, it's tight. I'm a big guy. There are times I thought I may end up down here along with Peter myself. But we finally arrive at that spot where Peter's bones are. And the seminarian, not being dramatic at all, he quotes from that passage in Matthew's gospel. Makes me tear up even thinking about it now that you are rock and upon rock I will build my church. And I hear behind me this woman, she starts weeping, just weeping uncontrollably. And so we all, I mean, when you're two hours, three hours underground with people and you're claustrophobic, you kind of get to know each other real quickly. It's, and so we're all kind of gathered around her. What's wrong, you know? I mean, what's happening? And she was a Protestant. And she said, I never understood what this passage actually meant. I never knew if she went back and became Catholic. I have to think that she did because that type of experience in that moment, but that's Again, notice the wisdom of God. That's literally what's happened. And so what was the instinct of the church? Well, first of all, we're going to pray to Peter. That was the initial impotence, because Peter, obviously, so close to our Lord, obviously. And then we're going to pray over his body, and we're going to build an altar there. We're going to offer the sacrifice. And notice you have two beautiful things happening there. Faith in the power of the first pope, the first disciple, the first among many, the first among equals, if you will, rather. But then also this sacrifice, and again, no conflict there at all. And then, of course, there's the Constantinian Basilica, there's the uh, kind of uh, 13th century, 14th century Basilica, and then there's the current Basilica of St. Peter's. All right. All of this because of the power of the sacrifice. So we're talking about it kind of in theological constructs. But in truth, the church has simply accepted this relationship between the Last Supper, the mystery of the cross, and the Lord's Supper, or the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Thomas, or the Council of Trent says that the sacrifice of Mass represents that of the cross. In both the victim and the offerer are one and the same. Both the victim and the offerer are one and the same. Jesus Christ, who offered himself on the cross, is offered now by the ministry of priests. Only the manner of offering is different. The one who offered himself on the altar of the cross in a bloody manner is now being offered at Mass in a bloodless manner. But the same victim and the same offerer. And while they use this passive language that he is now being offered, in truth he is the one offering because the priest is configured to Christ to offer the sacrifice. Finally, Trent makes very clear in, in, in um, conversation with our separated brethren that the Mass does not detract from the sacrifice on the cross by any stretch of the imagination. This was one of the critique of the revolters, that it detracts from the cross. It takes no, but rather it represents it. It memorializes Christ's transitus from this world to the Father. And again, that word, it makes a memorial. It memorializes so there is a reality to what it is that is transpiring. Okay, I'm going to pause just for a moment. Make sure we are kind of on track. Are there any questions?
thus far? Any thoughts? It's a lot to take in. I know that. It's not nearly as exciting as our last presentation. They had all sorts of kind of concrete things to work on and books to look at. This is a lot more cerebral, but that's okay because you're all intelligent people and you can handle it. Everybody's okay? Can you indulge me a few more minutes? Can you say yes? Thank you. So make sure everybody's consenting. Let's talk about the relationship of the Holy Eucharist to the Most Holy Trinity. And now we're kind of switching gears. This will be a little bit more of a pious reflection as we draw this to a conclusion as opposed to kind of a strict theological presentation. Not that there's anything wrong with piety, and nor does piety lack theological substance. So some uh, kind of preliminary comments first before we jump into the substance of this. On one level, it should appear without maybe the need for explanation that the work of the sacrifice of the Mass renders available to us the sacrament, which allows us to penetrate the inner union of the triune God. However, there also might be the temptation to go in the opposite direction. Since the whole work of the Mass is focused on the work of Christ himself, to in a sense shortchange or overshadow the fact that Christ is the one who leads us into relationship with the Father and the Spirit. We know, for example, or not for example, we know that the Father is the one who creates, the Son redeems, and the Spirit, sanct uh, the Spirit sanctifies. Of course, we don't talk about them in their function and their duty. We talked about them in their relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so since the holy sacrifice is a work of redemption of the Son, then our energies may easily fall into focusing only on the work of the Son himself, not realizing or maybe obscuring us in our reflections that while the Father does create, this work of the Son's redemption still is connected to the Father. And while the Spirit is the one who sanctifies, again, the sanctification the Spirit accomplishes is a continuation of the redemptive work of the Son. We know that it is Christ who reveals to us Father and Spirit, and it is Christ who allows us to enter into relationship with them. This goes back to that ancient debate. I may have alluded to it uh, when I was giving a retreat up in South Dakota. It was a conversation I had with the sisters about would there have been the necessity of the Lord's coming had Adam and Eve not sinned. I know that the Jesuits and the Dominicans have argued for this for centuries. Uh, I'm not sure if there was ever really a definitive answer. I tend to fall on the side of yes, there still would have been the need for the coming of our Lord precisely to reveal to us the fullness of our dignity. We already made reference last week to what we're going to hear in just a few short days beautifully proclaimed in the exalted. Oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin. Comes, of course, because we needed to be forgiven of our sins. But what happens to Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve did not know that they were God's son and daughter. And there was no way they were going to ever be able to reason to that, to come to that conclusion, come to that understanding. God was going to have to reveal that to them. Now, could he have chosen another way to do that? Of course he could have. But how much more beautiful and perfect is that way that he chose to come to reveal the intimacy of union by taking on our, 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 our visage, our reality, taking on everything about us but sin. And so he becomes one with his creation in order to truly help them understand who they actually are. This is what Adam and Eve squandered. 
Which is why, in a way, I kind of can give them a little bit of a break. I shared with you before my, I think I did already, my frustration with that, excuse me, uh, it is a, an eastern triptych of Adam and Eve being pulled out of Gehenna first. Why do they get to go first? They're the ones responsible for this. Shouldn't they stay longer and be punished? But then the flip side is, well, they didn't know who they really were. I mean, yes, they were thoroughly disobedient. There is no doubt about that. And we are paying the price for their disobedience. But they didn't really know what they were giving up. Like the prodigal son, for example, who knows exactly what he's doing. And we do as well when we sin. And so when we look at the work of the holy sacrifice of the Mass in its relationship to the Holy Trinity, it isn't a question of uncovering things that are hidden there. Rather, it is making sure that we're always clear about what is present there. It is rightly argued and legitimately true that in all the specific works of the Trinity, the other persons of the Trinity are present there by virtue of that relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Even if there are acts specific to each person of the Trinity, the other persons are there. So it wasn't if the Father created it and the Son and the Spirit were off tanning somewhere. The Spirit and the Son were present there as well. The Spirit, of course, we know is present in the work of the Son because of the theophanies that happen at the baptism of the Lord. The voice of the sky opens up. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And there appeared above him a dove, a cloud, a sun rays, however it might be manifest. So we know of the Father and the Spirit present in the work of the Son. The Spirit leads him into the desert. The Spirit is there to console him when he comes out of the desert. He prays to the Father constantly. He teaches us how to pray by allowing us to call God our Father. So clearly, the Father and the Son are present in the work of the Trinity. And of course, the Spirit continues this relationship of love that generates Him, that spirates Him, that comes out of Him uh, being the manifestation, if you will, careful with that word, of the love between the Father and the Son. It is precisely the work of the Son who opens up to us this relationship of the creative Father and the sanctifying spirit. So when St. John Paul II wrote his, one of his final reflections on the significance of keeping holy the Sabbath, keeping holy Sunday, it really was a reflection on the unicity, uniqueness of the redemptive work of Christ and the reality of Christ. He got dinged for it. People were mad at him. Christ isn't the only one. Yeah, he is the only one. Buddha's a nice guy. Uh, I guess, what's his name? Muhammad is a good guy. I'm not so sure about that, but okay. You may want to edit that out, by the way. I don't want to jihad against me, but there it is. Uh, and any other, other figures you might want to pull from ancient religions, real or imagined, but Christ is it. He is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Prince of peace. Christ. Not just this generic reality of God, Christ. This is why even the conversation about the three monotheistic religions uh, Israel, uh, Judaism, uh, Catholicism, which is Christianity, so Christianity and Islam, we're all the same. Eh, I don't know. That's a conversation that needs a little bit of nuancing there, a little, little massaging, because it isn't as simple to say simply because there is monotheism in all three that we share common realities. And even debate about common ancestors, Abraham as our common ancestor, certainly between us and our Jewish brethren. Uh, the Islamic reality, that's a conversation for another day. Moreover, the principal effect of the Eucharist, of the Eucharistic sacrifice, is to draw us into joy, enjoyment, fulfillment with the triune God. 
This is why that exhortation that comes from Pope St. Pius X to receive Holy Communion more frequently. Why? So that one might be in communion. Because that's the whole purpose of this. Yes, it expiates sin. There is no doubt about that. But the expiation of sin, much like the parallel in baptism, all of those exorcisms that happen in baptism, why? To then prepare the person, to prepare the child for that reality of receiving the grace that's going to come in baptism. And so the Eucharistic sacrifice does indeed remit our sins, uh, venial sins, immediately removed, if indeed we are sincere in doing so, for the purpose of allowing us union with God. That's where we're fulfilled, brothers and sisters. Not just that I am no longer a sinner, but I am, a, I am now a saved son and daughter in relationship with a beloved father, a brother who loves and dies for me, and the spirit who continues to give me life. St. Thomas reminds us that, indeed, the Eucharist is the sacrament of sacraments. And while the sacraments, in a sense, all of the sacraments, in a sense, um, in, a six, in a sense, prepare us for life, St. Thomas says that the Eucharist perfects all of the other sacraments. Quoting now, whereas all the sacraments participate in the virtue that goes forth from Christ, the Eucharist contains the fullness of Christ. That's why the Eucharist is the sacrament of the sacraments, because it is Christ himself. Yes, Christ is present and effective, and therefore real, in the other six sacraments. But in the Most Holy Eucharist, he is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Which is why we can distinguish between the ritual of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and the Blessed Sacrament itself. There is no other sacrament received or experienced apart from its liturgical and ritualistic expression. There is no such thing as baptism in and of itself. Yes, I am a baptized person, but I become one by virtue of the ritual. The same is true of confession and anointing of marriage and orders on the sacrament of confession. It's in the act of the ritual that the effects of the sacrament are realized. And so it's one continuous reality, the ritual and the grace that comes forth from it. The holy sacrifice, because it is the fullness of Christ himself, is both that which we experience in the holy sacrifice, the Mass, and the fact that our Lord is present with us here now in the tabernacle. We're not at Mass, but he is still present here with us. So hence Thomas's exhortation, or Thomas's actually affirmation, that the Eucharist perfects the other sacraments. We would venture, he says, to add that while the other sacraments give life, the Blessed Sacrament gives full enjoyment of that life. Not only does it too give life, but it gives us full enjoyment because it's moving us toward that communio, that communion, that unity, that oneness. St. Justin Martyr, in his reflections, this is one of the first systematic reflections on the Mass, saw in the prayers of praise and thanksgiving, excuse me, of the priest at the offerings received from the faithful, a prayer addressed to the Father in the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. He saw very clearly in the actual ritual itself this work of giving thanks to the Father and the Spirit. St. Clement of Alexandria sees in the Eucharist uh, a direct association with the mission entrusted to the Son by the Father. Again, it was the Father who sends the Son. He himself testifies to that. In the Eucharist, we share in that mission, which means we too share in that which the Father gives to the Son. 
It isn't, in a sense, just a mission of the Son. It is the Son doing the will of the Father, and the Eucharist allows us, in a sense, to stand next to the Son and likewise do the will of the Father. Hence the exhortation to be perfect as our Heavenly Father, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Not just be perfect as I am. Yes, the Lord says, do me. Do what I do. Be me, yes. But be me because I'm doing in obedience what the Father commanded me to do. And of course, we know that the work of the Spirit is present in the transformation of bread and wine, that epiclesis, that epicletic gesture, that desire to shower down the Spirit. Send forth your Spirit, O Lord, we pray. Bad translation, but there it is. With this gesture of hands. The laying on of hands at, the Holy Sac- at, the, at an ordination rite. A beautiful thing to receive. Even more beautiful in one sense to actually participate in. This gesture of touching someone's head, of placing one's hands. It happens in the sacrament of anointing. When we pray for uh, the first act of the actual act of anointing itself is prayer over the person before the anointing of the person. That the prayer of the church, the prayer of Christ, may bring healing to that person and strength in the midst of their suffering. But there is also present in the work of the holy sacrifice of the whole reality of the Trinity themselves. So the Son abides in the Father. How does that happen? Undoubtedly, it is first of all by an eternal act of self-oblation, by totally yielding up his person to the Father. So how does the Son abide in the Father? We know in John's Gospel, chapter uh, 13, 14, 15, maybe even 16, has that beautiful kind of ongoing undercurrent, but also very clear conversation about the Father and the Son being one. And, And it happens first by this complete gift of self, The Son holds nothing back, obviously. Because even in the garden, when he asks the Father, is there another way, the answer comes back, no. He doesn't say, well, I don't think I can do this. I'll catch you later. As your will, so it be done. And he gets up. We've read it twice now. I love it. Because actually it was one of the last things that John Paul II wrote in his reflections on his life as bishop, as cardinal, and as pope. Rise, let us be on our way. His title of the book is Rise, Let Us Go. Rise up but it's a variant on both Luke, on uh, Mark, and on Matthew. Rise, let us go. Rise, let us be on our way because our betrayer is at hand. Get up, guys, and let's go because here it is. So we've prayed, we've prepared, we've taught, we've talked to God the Father. It's now about business. Get up and let's go. And what does he do? He immediately walks right. He doesn't wait for Judas to come kiss him. He goes to meet him. Goes to meet him. So first, if we talk about the unity of the Son and the Father, it is this complete gift of self. But then the Son abides in the Father by also enjoying the riches of the Father, that consubstantiality that exists. They are of the same substance. So it's not just the obedience of the Son to the Father. Yes, it is that. But in that act of obedience, there also is this, again, this enjoyment, this joy. That's what Christian joy is. Christian joy consists in a comfort and a peace that comes from being in the presence of God. That's why human joy, as good as it can be, is always better by Christian joy, by authentic joy, which comes in God. I am not at rest, Augustine says, until I rest in you. There is no joy apart from God. That's why the world is angry and confused, because they're trying to find enjoyment in things that don't bring enjoyment. 
Sex, money, power, fame, majesty, whatever. All these secular things that fleeting, they come and go. Those might give for a moment enjoyment, but purely on a natural, visceral level, which means it doesn't last. The only lasting enjoyment is that unity with God, that face-to-face beatitude. This also is a part of the Son abiding with the Father. But then the adopted sons of God, us, children, sons and daughters, united through the sacrifice, we also get to participate in relationship with the Father in that twofold manner. First, through our gift of ourself to the Father, and then in that gift, that complete donation of self, that complete oblation of self. I'm glad I went to confession day because it, I had a chance to really sit and prepare in my examination of conscience. And one of my, he did not this confessor, but one of my regular confessors I haven't seen for a while, always reminds me that as a priest, my sins can always be boiled down to a failure to love and to selfishness. No matter what the sin is, it's because I have not loved enough, it's because I am too selfish. Now that could be said truly of all sin. Not all sin is boiled down to that, but it could be boiled down to that. That refusal to give myself to the Father, through the Son. I'm configured to do that. I have uh, an even more of a compunction to accomplish this. But if I do that, and only focus, if you will, on the uh, absence, the abnegation, the self-denial that comes in self-oblation, then I lose sight of what comes also with that, is the joy that comes with my Father. Hopefully you all have had some experience, even if it's been fleeting, of those moments of true communion with God. In prayer in the Blessed Sacrament, that fleeting moment where maybe it wasn't even an answer to a prayer. It was just, it was a good prayer. It was a good hour of prayer. Maybe it was a good five minutes of prayer. Maybe not an hour. But in that hour of prayer, whatever it might be, you've had that experience of, of just for a moment. And maybe more, hopefully more than just that. Of, of that experience of what it means to rest in God. This would always happen to me when I was teaching in the seminary, especially when I was in Ohio, because I was, the campus was much larger at the seminary in Ohio than it was here when I was teaching at Kenry. I had the care and the custody of four chapels in various buildings. And so I was constantly flitting back and forth, making sure everything was stocked and so on and so forth. And every now and then I would just stop and I would sit and pray. And it was kind of like Hezekiah discovering the roles of the Ten Commandments for the prayer. This is great. I should do this more often. Duh. And as a matter of fact, no one is stopping you. You can do this more often. Actually, you can do it as much as you want. You're actually in charge. You're in charge of literally all of this. That's what we want to hold on to. That moment, that insight of, yes, this is, all of this is, all this gift of myself. And the Lord tells us that. If you offer a little bit, you're going to get something back 10, 50, and 100 fold. The little you think you're giving, because you think you're giving a lot, the Lord says, I'm always going to outdo you. I'm always going to do you one better, because I'm God. That's how I am. And so this abiding of the Son with the Father allows us to do abide in the same way. And the Eucharistic sacrifice is the manner in which that happens. Because what happens to us in the Eucharist then? We participate in the sacrifice, but we also receive the sacrifice. Because again, we literally take God inside of ourselves. And so one should approach the altar rail with a certain degree of trepidation because to receive is to commit oneself to this level of self-oblation. If you're not willing to do it, don't come forward. I've preached about this in the past, especially at the seminary, and the effect it has is kind of unnerving because people don't come up to communion. 
because they realize I probably shouldn't come. We've gotten used to it because we just, everybody comes up for something. They're giving away, what's going on up there? Well, let's walk up and see. Let's get something. Well, you should, you should maybe stay there. You're still not, you're not losing anything. You still get grace by being participative at Holy Mass. But to commune with God in that way, to receive him, to be then entering into the covenant in a way you're saying, now, yes, Lord, I'm authentically pledging myself to give myself to you completely. Don't do it unless you're actually prepared to do that. The Son also abides in the Holy Spirit because with the Father, He is that principle from whence the third divine person proceeds. But the Son is also in the Holy Spirit by eternal inheritance. And the Son rejoices in the Spirit of love for the Holy Spirit contains the Father and the Son from whom He proceeds as love holds lovers closely united in a happy embrace. Rock, Rock Koretsky, who wrote a book called The Wedding Feast of the Lamb, it's a beautiful book, talks about the relationship between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is language from the Novus Ordo. But he says the liturgy of the Word is like a letter written by our beloved that we listen to over and over and over again. But once the writer of the letter comes in our midst, the letter pales in comparison to the author himself. Even if the words and the language that's used is different than the words first expressed in that letter of love. Why is the holy sacrifice the central reality again? Because it is that moment where we are embraced in love. And so this same abiding in the Spirit, our same abiding in the Father, is also present in the Spirit. Our abiding in the Spirit is manifested by love. And remember now, brothers and sisters, the definition of love now is that we are more concerned about the other than we are concerned about ourselves. <laughs> okay? That's why they had to create a new word to describe what it is that Christ has given us. It isn't erotic sexual love. It isn't brotherly love. And those aren't bad things. They have their place. But love revealed in God in Christ is to think more of the other than I do myself. This is, after all, what he himself did, did he not? I give my life as a ransom for many. And so if I'm in relationship with the Spirit, which the sacrifice does indeed draw me into, hence the presence of Father, Son, and Spirit, so too then am I required as the Son and the Spirit engage each other in that relationship of love from whence the Holy Spirit proceeds, so too must I be a man, a woman, a child of love. Final thought then, this union that we share with the Trinity that is present in the Holy Sacrifice can be beautifully expressed by what happens in the mystery of the sacrifice. What do I mean by that? We have used the word transubstantiation several times this evening to talk about that change of bread and wine into body and blood. But that transubstantiation, in a sense, that terminates in Christ, he is present, body, blood, soul, and that's what happens. Bread and wine become body and blood, become Christ himself. What's required is that also I be transformed as well. 
His real presence and our being drawn into that through the sacrifice draws us into this mystery of this transformation that is required of me. I am meant to be transformed. As God has changed bread and wine, so the act of receiving and entering fully into the sacrifice commits to me being transformed. We talk about the church being in a constant posture of conversion. She herself is the spotless bride of Christ. In her members, all of us, there is still sin, which means she always, we always need to be in a posture of conversion. Of course, again, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation is the sacramental manifestation of that desire to always be in conversion. But conversion isn't only away from sin, it's also toward virtue. The old law was simply away from sin, that's it. If you got that far, you were doing pretty good. And some days I feel that way. If I can just simply put aside sin, I'll be doing okay. Don't ask me to be good. Just help me not to be bad. But that's not the new law. The new law is, yes, not only should you abjure sin and put aside badness, you need to live this life of goodness. And so you too, in receiving our Eucharistic Lord, who has been given to us now, who has been allowed this transformation, this transubstantiation to happen, you too have to allow that same thing to happen to you. Okay. Kind of getting to the end here, so hang in here with me. I just have a few more pages, actually. And i got about a few more minutes to do it. So let's talk about the graces of Holy Mass. This is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. But as a way of just kind of helping us, in a sense, kind of pull a lawsuit, what, what, what is it, in a sense, we get out of all of this? Although if it's not clear now what you get out of this, I, I don't know what I can say to you. Maybe you just shouldn't be here. I mean, I hate to say that to people, but at some point you've got to say, look, if you don't get it, it's not, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Well, I was joking the other day. I forget the context of that. Stan, I may have been Stan and I were talking about something. But I was joking the other day, because when we were in the seminary, we, we, were, we were slightly trained to make things dramatic. You know, so the person trained in, in, in oratory who gets up and does a dramatic reading for the book of Genesis, the chariot and the chariot tears, one of the prophecies of uh, the Easter vigil. And I guess that's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a dramatic reading of Genesis. There doesn't need to be a dramatic reading of the consecration. Because what can be more dramatic than bread and wine becoming body and blood? You making good eye contact or the priest raising his voice or doing some thunderous thing like Ben-Hur or James Earl Jones as Darth Vader, that's, what, what does that do? That only reinforces you actually don't believe. That's why sometimes we have to complicate it because it is so simple. It's just bread and wine after all. That's all it is. No more complicated than that. And we would think, well, if God made it more complicated than I really would have believed. Well, no, you wouldn't, because you can't even believe when it's simple. So how can you honestly say if God made it more complicated, if he made it harder than I really would believe? Because you can't believe when he actually made it simple, and he made it simple because he knew you wouldn't believe it, and it was simple. All right, so, with all, all that being said, and that slight little unnecessary histrionics, what do we get out of all of this? Why are we doing all of this? We do this because, first and foremost, we are allowed to give praise to God. We talked about this, actually, in our first series, that the, all of this exists to give praise to God, because God is worthy of our praise. And, of course, we know now, from what he has revealed about himself, 
that these acts of praise that he receives from us, this perfect act of praise that he receives from us, opens us up to his power of sanctification, changing our very existences, changing our souls and grafting us unto himself. We also receive for our salvation the gift of his Son. We receive from the Father the Son who nourishes and feeds us. We experience for our salvation this renewal of the mystery of the Incarnation. And by the renewal of the Incarnation that happens in the graces of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, there then is a renewal of that born into the whole world. This is why we're men and women of hope. We can never become hopeless. As difficult as the world is, and you all know better than I, it's a difficult world now. And while there are no coliseums yet where they're herding us into it to be slaughtered, don't kid yourself that literally, not just decades from now, maybe months or years from now, we might find ourselves in something akin to a reality where they actually are clamoring for our blood. But there's no reason to despair because we know what, ha what happens with the shedding of blood and the breaking of body. New life. The world is transformed. If we can link that suffering that we might endure to that which our Lord himself has already endured and allows us to renew in the sacrifice, then it leads to the transformation, the ongoing transformation of the world. We also receive for our salvation this reality of worship that he perfectly offers to the Father. He now gives to us to offer to the Father as well. It's like showing up with a really bad gift at a wedding and you realize everybody else's gifts are bigger and better. And so you go to the table and you remove yours because you're embarrassed. You don't have to worry about that now. You don't have to show up empty-handed. And nor do you have to show up with a gift that isn't as good as everybody else's. You show up with the best of gifts. It's like the Lord when he taught us the Our Father. Think of the holiest person you know, a relative, a friend, a priest, whoever it might be, and think about wouldn't it be nice to know what they're praying about. I've had some priests where I've watched them pray and I want to know what's in their minds. And the Lord said, okay, I'll let you know. Not just a mere human being, but a divine person, the God-man. Let us know what went on in his conversation with the Father. And then he said, I'm going to do you one better. When it comes time to praise, so you can pray to the Father in these words. And then when you need to give him praise, this is the way you do it. And I guarantee you, and that's what happens, I will give you a guarantee that you will offer something perfect. And the words that you say will be perfect if you do the things that I command you to do. So that is what we receive, if you will, for our salvation. What is received, in a sense, by way of offering? We are able to offer this perfect praise and adoration to God the Father. A perfect praise of thanksgiving. So adoration, but also thanksgiving. I want to say thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for me. The best way to do that is through the Holy Sacrament of the Mass. Now one can say also the manner in which you live your life, but of course that's going to be an extension of how you live the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It is also through this act of offering this sacrifice that we are reconciled to the triune God. We are brought back into this relationship that brings us complete joy. And then finally, we, the graces received are pardon and reparation. Venial sins can be pardoned at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And we are also fortified against mortal sin at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. 
And then it also has the ability in this act of pardon and reparation to purify our good deeds of any imperfection. This is the reason why Thomas reasoned that we needed to make the act of contrition in confession because we might have imperfect contrition, which is also known as attrition. Imperfect contrition is the sorrow for sins for fear of punishment. When we make the act of contrition in the sacrament, the sacrament purifies our attrition so that it can become a contrition whereby what do we say in the second half of the act of contrition? Not only for the fear and loss and pains of hell, but also because they have offended you, my God, whom I should love above all things. I'm sorry because, yes, I'm afraid of being punished, but I'm more sorry because I love you and I know I hurt you. And so what happens to us in the sacrifice, the grace is received, is it has the ability to purify our good deeds. So St. Ignatius of Loyola recommends in the uh, evening examen, when you're examining your consciences before you go to bed, that, you, that he, what he calls um, purifying one's intentions. Look at what you did in the day, and look at why you did what you did. Hopefully you didn't do any bad. But even the good that you did, did you do it for the right reason? And sometimes we don't do good for the right reasons. It's still good that we did it, the good that we did, but then what the Eucharistic sacrifice has the ability to do is to purify the imperfections that may be present. All right, by way of conclusion, oh my goodness, give me three, give me five more minutes. I'll see if I can do this very quickly, although it seems unfair to end so quickly on this note, but this isn't a bad way. So St. Lawrence basically says that there are three ways that one is able to devoutly, to devoutly assist at Mass. He said the first method of hearing Holy Mass, this is his language, is used by those who have book in hand, accompanied with the utmost attention, all the actions of the priest, repeat at each of these a vocal prayer as laid down in the book itself, whatever book they're using, and thus pass the whole of Mass reading. And there is no doubt that if this be united with the right consideration of the sacred mysteries, it is a most excellent method of assisting at the Holy Sacrifice. Meaning, for those of you that may still feel that you are chained to your missiles, there certainly isn't anything wrong with that. That's the first method that he's describing. The second method, he says, is almost the exact opposite. Those who take no book at all who read nothing whatsoever during their time of the divine sacrifice, but instead fix their mental eye kindled by faith on Jesus crucified and lean against the tree of the cross, gather its fruit in sweet contemplation, pass the whole time in devout interior recollection, and sweetly engage their minds in consideration of the sacred mysteries of the passion of Jesus. Nobody writes like that anymore. <laughs> I mean... Listen to that line. Listen to that. <laughs> so the second method, he says, of hearing Holy Mass is employed by those who read nothing whatsoever during their time of the divine sacrifice, but instead fixing their mental eye, which kindled by faith, keep focus on Jesus Christ crucified and leaning against the tree of the cross. So it's almost a pastoral scene he creates sitting down underneath the tree, put your back to it on a beautiful summer day. But it's the tree of the cross you're leaning against, so it's much more serious. But then gather from this same tree, the tree of the cross, its fruits in sweet contemplation, 
and pass the whole time of Mass in devout interior recollection, sweetly engaging their minds in consideration of the sacred mysteries of the Passion of Jesus, which, he then concludes, is not only represented, but is mystically carried out in that holy sacrifice that they're contemplating. So this method oftentimes is the method of those who either have grown weary of trying to keep up the missile, and maybe with a degree of frustration simply close it, throw it on the ground, and say, I'm just going to pray, or never had a missile at all, just kind of wandered in, and here I am, and just going to sit and pray. That's good too. Notice how encouraging that is. So those of you who have your noses buried in your missiles, it's okay. But don't look down your noses at those who don't. And those who don't, don't feel superior as if somehow, well, I'm better without the book. No, they're both legitimate methods of hearing Mass. The third, he says, is basically a combination of the two. Use the resources that are available to you to assist you in being able to hear Holy Mass. Now, in one sense, this all seems to be uh, a very... Uh, straightforward and simple. Why the need to articulate that? Because in doing so, what he reminds us of in both the first, second, and the third methods, that the goal of all of this is to allow us to assist, to hear, to be present. And so the focus that you should have is not on the methodology that affects what it is that I want, but making sure that whatever methodology I appropriate, it allows me to actually do that. And so there are times in my own private prayer where I'm able to come in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord and sit without recourse to anything, rosary or book or divine office. There are other times I'm so distracted that I have no choice but to hold fast to something that will actually root me so that my mind doesn't wander. Both of those are combination thereof are legitimate ways of certainly entering into prayer and they're certainly legitimate ways of being able to enter in to the Holy Sacrifice. That is a good place for us to conclude. And to really just think about now, especially over the next several days as we enter into these holiest of days, Holy Thursday, for example, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Most Holy Eucharist in the priesthood, the Mass of the Priest Sanctified on Good Friday, and the beautiful Easter Vigil. There will be resources in the pews when you arrive to assist you. Uh, so please share that with others. I ask that you keep the, those missiles in the pews so that others will be able to use them throughout these days. Because the rituals that we are using are those that come from the pre-55 celebration of Holy Week. So they'll be a little bit different than what we're used to. And the books, I think, you will find very helpful. My final exhortation to boil all of this together. We're doing all of this. The last set of talks, this talk, what Dr. K is going to do. I'm hoping... Uh, to nail down, we're going to have a series of talks on the divine office and the chanting of the divine office and, and what that means for us. All of this is done not merely to give us knowledge, as good as this knowledge is. It is always to draw us more deeply into that deep and abiding intimacy into which we are now drawn through the sacrifice that we celebrate. We exist for communion with God, and He has found this most perfect way to affect that communion and all that prescinds from it. Let's be mindful of the things that have been heard, things that have been spoken and said, those things that you will read. All of that is meant to instill not only a change of your mind, but also a renewal of your heart and a strengthening of your spirit. Please rise. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
and Dominus Vobiscum, Benedictio de Omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen. God bless you. Have a happy Easter. Thank you.